up is so very hard to do. If you really love him, and there's nothing I can do, don't try to spare my feelings. Just tell me that we're through, and make it. And compared to his grace, no words of consolation will make me miss you less, my darling. This is podcast 140, entitled Make It Easy on Yourself, and it's about a theme towards which, or through the whirlpool, or um, Scylla and Charybdis of which, I'm trying to circle for a landing, and it's a deliberate attempt in um, spontaneous expression in the Kerouac sense. That is to say, I'm not exactly sure where um, the um, uh, inspiration of the composition is going to end up. I'm not exactly sure what the conclusion is. I want to um, uh, allow this material, brief as it is today, after a bit of a hiatus, to emerge of its own accord, you might say, to use a phrase that I'm uh, working with from the handbook of the thinking of Simeon Zal, a kind of undetermined or rather 
underdetermined use of language and metaphor in order to get at something really substantial and uh, that is both spiritual and is real. And the theme, in fact, is the theme of self-forgiveness or compassion on yourself. Now, for years I've thought that this was a, a flaky or lame or insufficient or unsatisfactory um, way of describing the great transaction of human healing or curative impact that exists within the storehouse of forgiveness as a as an experienced transaction. I felt that when Christ talked about um, that you you uh, that that the forgiveness begins uh, love one another as you love yourself, the great commandment that the loving yourself was the problematic factor because uh, like you, I looked into myself and I saw the Hitchcockian character of uh, Jimmy Stewart in um, Vertigo or in um, Rear Window, um, the person who was um, revealed to be someone who is not lovable. That is to say that the, the core transaction of love your neighbor as you love yourself, the, uh, the second of the two great commandments, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, was fundamentally flawed in experience because it, it uh, uh, suggested a person who himself not only was unworthy of forgiveness, except if it be arbitrary, and I believe that the forgiveness wrought on Calvary was in a way arbitrary but with a capital A, that um, the uh, notion of self-forgiveness sounded like a tautology. That is to say, how in the world can you forgive yourself when you yourself are so flawed? It felt to me like uh, in the law, you know, you can't be a witness in your own defense. And um, I've now, however, seen the um, the kind of, uh, I've exhausted, I guess I, I saw exhausted the uh, tremendous need to be forgiven by another as both powerful, but it, it 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 didn't seem to be enough as a as a construct, as an idea to insist upon the forgiveness of uh, from someone else to myself. It didn't quite do the trick. That is to say, in experience, it had certain limitations. I was uh, <clears throat> listening to some talks not long ago, and there was this tremendous uh, importation of the Seventh Cavalry at the end of every one. The diagnosis in the talks was absolutely correct of the feckless, frustrated, futile, and uh, inadequate self to do anything for itself that was lastingly merciful or powerful, and therefore we <coughs> have to put all our eggs into the basket of the forgiveness of Christ that was wrought centuries ago on Calvary, and I understood that, but there would be this sudden, very emotional, but quite abstract turning towards look to him. What has he done? He has done it all. He is, you know, the one. It is completely, and all of which I felt as I listened to it, is true as far as it goes. The, this a tremendous um, uh, laying of all the weight on the uh, on the the gift of God in a particular historical um, function uh, at Good Friday, and it was similar to a metaphor that was often used in. Uh, early ministry that you could have all the faith in the world on thin ice and it wouldn't hold you up. But if you had 
very little faith or very struggling or failing faith on thick ice. It would still hold you up. But the question was, what was the thick ice? And the thick ice, for many people, because it's simply true in experience, is when you say that the thick ice is something that happened long ago, thick and true as that may be, there is an abstract character to it by definition that Lessing picked up when he said that, you know, you cannot found the... uh, the, the eternal thing that connects with you and your present life with ultimate power on something that uh, uh, on a conditional fact of history. And I don't accept Lessing, but I know what he was talking about. That is to say, for these sermons to always end with this importation of that one thing by standing on which you are secure, while it's true, it had a kind of kind of abstract character or conceptual character. And this would explain why the very people that constantly insist on this, and I'm, they're co-belligerents with me. No, I lie. They're, they're people with whom I'm very deeply in uh, sync and with sympathy. Not co-belligerents, but people who I feel have got the human condition, but are also realizing that there's got to be a better, there's got to be a better way. Frankie goes to Hollywood, there's got to be a better way. Um, this uh, this uh, power you know, I always I think all of a sudden my associative mind goes to Frankie goes to Hollywood and I kind of lose the thread. But I, don't worry. The thread is that there's got to be a better way, but it's also got to be something that has absolute immediacy to the person that I am uh, today. And an abstraction, if it is historical, while it may in fact be the ultimate core of the whole business, has to have some kind of anchor in, some kind of way in, some kind of harpoon, some kind of... Uh, you know, something's got to be be shot into me that actually grasps and on, on which I can hold. And so I explore how does this actually work. Well, it actually works through one's own detachment from the terrible problem of insufficiency that one has. And in the moment of detachment, you almost forgive ex opere operato. The moment you step out of the thing and look at yourself, look at yourself, you know, look in the mirror, there is a healing quality. There is something like a a de facto, by the way, focusing entirely on Calvary's tree, if it's not uh, de facto will become de jure too quickly. Again, it becomes an arbitrary importation that, while true, doesn't really is not sufficient to dislodge the rock that is uh, totally covering over the possibility of your life. So you have to focus on something that is actually going to be a, a, a dynamic, powerful leverage. And that uh, clearly, in the words of Christ, was that you know to forgive others, you have to forgive yourself. Love one another as you love yourself, which again, I thought was essentially inadequate. Let's just say, let's not say lame. Let's say it was just inadequate. And this is why um, the words of, uh, of Isherwood in a... Uh, in a journal entry, uh, have meant a great deal to me, notwithstanding words of others. And I want to anchor this podcast in a text and then comment briefly on it uh, before um, closing with a kind of musical element that I'll allow you to um, sort of interact with yourself emotionally if you care to listen. Now, the... um, power of uh, Isherwood's uh, journals, and specifically the 
Diaries from 1939 to 1960, and I've got the English edition, but they're in print uh, paperback, and they were uh, published here, let's see, in uh, 1996 with Catherine Bucknell's intro. But the uh, diaries are a kind of, um, I would put them on the par of sort of a mid-20th century imitatio Christi. Now, I know you'll say, oh my gosh, how can he do that? Well, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, which is really one of the most um, uh, powerful and uh, lasting spiritual classics in the Christian tradition, um, is something that speaks to every generation. And what I found as I was reading, not all of Isherwood's journals, especially as he kind of loses the plot, but not completely, thank heavens, but not completely, but nevertheless... In, in actual dwelling place, his tents dwell in other territory in later years, although they do keep coming back to the insights that he received in 1939 and 40 and 41. But the... Uh, the, 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 the power of these journals is that they show a very, very flawed human being who is in touch with and is, almost, is forced by his own psychic and personal, uh, interpsychic and personal historic needs and flaws to find refuge in a divine or spiritual or we might call it theological solution that is also earthed in real practice. So he is constantly flashing in and out of some kind of concentration on those things which he believes will save him until the day he died, 1986. He believed that, but in these initial uh, experiences, he is um, he is in a, a close encounter of the third kind. He is in a close, absolutely vivid, focused, personal, right up front uh, engagement with uh, ultimate ideas and experiences which are make or break for him because of his tremendous relationship problems that are so absorbing to him and so troubling, let alone his unpopularity by being a true as opposed to a, an ad hoc pacifist. He believed that all wars were wrong, including the Second World War. So he was in a very minority position, and he was an emigre or expat living in L.A., and thrown into a world that was entirely different from anything he'd ever lived in. So he was kind of an atom out there, way out on a limb in about five different uh, compartments of his life, and all of a sudden he now finds uh, some kind of anchorage. And I want to read from th- – therefore his, his, uh, his account has um, uh, credibility because it's a real person in a real context struggling to find a real solution. And uh, he um, uh, writes in his, um, uh, his uh, entry from July the 14th, uh, 1940, he has actually just prayed – a prayer which he's written out, which is really quite astonishing given his personality and history. And then he concludes the entry by saying the following, Remember that your strangulated ego is everything you hate in others, so how can you hate anybody? You are only hating yourself. This is what Homer Lane meant when he said, quote, You must love yourself. End of quote. Isherwood continues, I thought Homer Lane meant, quote, you must be complacent with your present condition. Then Isherwood concludes, forgive yourself absolutely, then operate. 
And he means operate in the sense of getting ready to operate. You know, in the Marvin Gaye sense, he means operate. And I don't mean that se- sexually. I mean, then you can actually operate. You, you, you like a like a uh, a car. You can you can operate. You can you can the machine will go once you have forgiven yourself. Absolutely. This uh, parenthetically is the uh, overwhelming core, but not only, but the the main and final concluding theme of Isherwood's very powerful. I'm sure we can say flawed novel of 1952 entitled um, The World in the Evening. It's the whole matter of self-forgiveness. Uh, what uh, uh, really uh, uh, sort of uh, catalyzed this um, uh, dwelling in my own thinking, hence the podcast 140, quoted from the Walker Brothers, as you noticed initially, is something that Mary stated the other day. I was speaking to her about a particular issue that was engrossing one's attention. And uh, she said, well, an insight has come to me, Paul, about that particular thing. Uh, The answer does not lie in the situation. It does not lie in expecting, hoping, or grousing about or complaining against any potential or non-existent change in that particular situation. The answer lies 100% in yourself. The the real uh, f- f- uh, engagement here, the, 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 the f- I hate to use the word of struggle. Well, uh, battle I don't want to use, struggle. The struggle for you is in its impact on you and your own um, engagement with that. And in a way, Mary was saying, you have to accept the reality, accept the reality that the situation itself gives absolutely no evidence uh, in, in its own self intrinsically uh, to, to any kind of change or um, crack, a fissure in the egg shell there. Nothing is going to happen there. Certainly that's the evidence. So accept the reality of that. And then um, having accepted that, your problem, your issue is to accept and reconcile yourself. And you might actually use biblical language or uh, language of absolution. You must really forgive that situation. That is to say, forgive its impact on you. Accept it. Except Aufnahme, you know, it's Tillich's word. Don't worry about Tillich. He had a lot to say. Whatever you think about Tillich, he had a great, great insight there on the grace is, is acceptance. Accepting the situation means also accepting yourself in the situation. And from that moment, there's a kind of hope. <clears throat> it's hope without hope. It's We're talking about Eliot's insight there. You must hope without hope. Hope would be for the wrong thing. You'd be focusing your hope, to quote Eliot, on the change externally. And the only hope, as AA teaches us, as Eliot teaches us, as the Bible teaches us, as finally St. Paul teaches us, um, it is it is an excoriating diagnostic surgical operation on your own self. And that's why he quotes Homer Lane. Now let me just add, you know, all these ideas, we think we've to come up with something new. Someone said the other day, who had been a Baptist minister since he was 19 years old, and he's now in his 80s, and a very distinguished historian of a Southern American religion, <clears throat> a very great friend and mentor of ours. And he said, well, you know, Baptists, as I grew up in, his father was a Baptist minister too, we, have, we don't believe in history. We believe there's absolutely nothing happened before I became a Christian, quote, end of quote, before you become a Christian. There's no history at all. There's nothing. There's absolutely, don't for a minute think that anything prior to um, my becoming a Christian, quote, end of quote, um, that's a assertion or maxim has any reality to it we we forget uh, as people that things have been stated long before and when you read issue journal you sort of keep wanting to it's very embarrassing because a lot of ideas that you think are new or notions that you think are fresh to us today or um things that bother you today are just as present i mean his uh, his talk about 
journalism and anxiety before World War II. It could be post-9-11 journalism and anxiety. His talk about the radio and the terribly negative power of uh, exaggerated reports that continually come in about everything. That could be today in cable news or internet or Yahoo. I mean, his uh, talk about distractions and noise. And, you know, I live in a place where the sirens go all the time in a small little place. It's obviously something about the people who do the the fire engines, they, they get a huge kick out of this and they're responding as it always comes out in the newspaper to minor things with a massive overreaction. And uh, he had exactly the same problem in San Diego in, uh, in the 1930s, the same kind of total paranoia, which is captured, by the way, in the film by Steven Spielberg, which you can find, actually, if you look carefully, 1941. They have you believe that it's not available. Well, if you look carefully, you can find it all sorts of places. But in any event paranoia and uh, uh, tremendous anxiety exist and also insight. So Homer Lane, it turns out that he was an American psychologist who founded a kind of community in England in the early 20th century, um, first quarter of the 20th century, to help um, uh, recuperating criminals, young offenders, to come to a place of hope, um, having offended. Uh, And they were actually legally sent to his community. I think it was called the Little Commonwealth. And his principles of... of, uh, of faith, uh, hope, and charity, or rather grace in practice. When you read about Homer Lane, for whatever else you know about him, and I'm no authority on Homer Lane, that's a new word to me, but it just shows you, doesn't it? When you read about what Homer Lane was doing in his little community for uh, young offenders who actually he was given authority over, you see what an extraordinary insight he had about the nature of forgiveness. And it is Homer Lane that uh, that uh, uh, had uh, such a great influence on Whiston. And Whiston, W-Y-S-T-A-N, who occurs as a major character, in fact, and in actuality, in Isherwood's diaries, is uh, we know him as W.H. Auden. And uh, Auden was terribly impressed by um, Homer Lane, and he uh, really, from an increasingly specifically Christian angle, kept bringing um, Isherwood's thinking back to insights of Homer Lane, which were really, in my opinion, and in uh, Whiston's opinion, um, Christian insights explicitly or specifically. Well, the power of self-forgiveness, let's just end now for just a minute and think about this. Um, what does this actually mean? Uh, Mary said it uh, to me. The, the, you, you have to deal with this in yourself. You have to come to terms with whatever feelings you have or resentments you are having. Or This is AA right here. You, with a little bit of help, you need to deal with this in yourself. You cannot go and fuss or change the situation. Um, if you have a chance, go to the website of St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, where Russell Levinson is the rector and where R.J. Heyman and um, Tom Hotchkiss and uh, Aaron Zimmerman and many other outstanding uh, people are on the staff and in the leadership there. And go on that website, and I think this is also on the Mockingbird website with new resources. And uh, if you have any time, it's easy to get downloaded. It's free. Just get the listen to the sermon I preached at St. Martin's Houston on the 3rd of March, uh, the thing that people came back to me about was that when I said that acceptance of reality is the open sesame of a human uh, curative uh, of, of human uh, curative developments in impossible paralyzed situations, uh, people seem to 
get that. Russell was kept coming back to that. It's the open sesame. That is to say, there's something about accepting reality, which is let, let's let's say this. It's a form of forgiveness. Let's not put it entirely ethically. Let's say it's it's the it's the acceptance of the thing as it is without judgment. Acceptance without judgment. Again, I, I want to say, you know, gag me with a spoon. You know, it sounds so. Um, antinomianly complacent, but it actually works. You see, the importation of the 7th Cavalry from the uh, the great Duchess theologian, whose name I forget, who influenced Van Gogh's father. And there was a great movement in the Dutch Reformed Church that kind of um, affected a group of Dutch theologians and Van Gogh's father and, and Vincent Van Gogh and Theo themselves. That <clears throat> Where was I converted? I was converted at Calvary. Well, yes, but then it would it would it would run out of gas. That view it was true. I I have no problem accepting that. Yes, what happened at Calvary was profound. I'm right there with Bob Dylan on that. But it 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 ran out of gas because it wasn't in direct. It was hard to take an, a historical reality or an event which was inevitably by virtue of its distance, by virtue of chronology. It was hard to bring that or import that into the present in such a way that it actually had a lasting, lifelong, enduring, continuing day to day effect. And uh, what the uh, that's the fly in the ointment on on that particular importation of preaching. And what we find is that the moment we talk about the thing, people used to say in my preaching, it wasn't the last part of the sermons that got to them. It was just the clear, simple, or shall we say mirror up to nature talking about a problem using illustrations from personal life and pastoral experience, always disguised. That made people say, oh, my gosh, you know, that's really, that's does it. That, that says it. I, I, as soon as you talk about it in that way in the pulpit, Paul, I feel okay about it. I can look at it. I have to be a little distanced because it's so painful, but you allow me to look at it. And in looking at this particular situation or part of myself or part of my history, I find an enormous relief. And that's why people came coming back. I recommend to you, by the way, two Rossellini films. One is Voyage to Italy, which was just the other day on uh, on TCM. They actually showed it, I think, uh, golly, uh, two nights ago on TCM. Uh, that would have been the 15th of March. Uh, and it's available actually in a Korean DVD, but I'm sure Criterion will come out with it. But you can get a, a copy, a Region 1 DVD of it, Voyage in Italy with Ingrid Bergman and George Sanders. And also a movie which is available on Hulu, but they showed also from 1946, which has never been available really to see regularly until this year, entitled um, entitled uh, Fear. Uh, that's also Rossellini with Ingrid Bergman and a German cast. It's amazing. And what happens in a, in a very troubled woman in each case is a, a troubled, troubled woman who comes to the absolute end of her rope in her marriage. And then she, uh, in an undetermined way, she encounters certain images, one uh, images of, of ancient Roman culture in Pompeii, even though she's a contemporary person, and the other of some images she sees uh, in a lab of her husband's uh, um, uh, pharmacological factory, pharmaceutical factory, she sees herself reflected in these images of the, of the things that she sees, and she comes to a powerful meltdown in each case. And then God makes an appearance, uh, it, it really remarkably and gracefully, in the form of forgiveness. I recommend these movies without reservation as two of the most extraordinarily cathartic movies you're going to see this year or ever. Voyage in Italy, 
with uh, Ingrid Bergman and George Sanders and Fear with Ingrid Bergman from 1946 or 47. Now, what happens is that the Seventh Cavalry does make an appearance, but it makes an appearance in the here and now, actually through human love, except catalyzed or abreacted or or substitutively acted out in something, a parable, uh, a parabolic symbol that she sees, she just happens to grasp sight of with her eyes, that caused her to melt down, and then uh, a benign or friendly universe makes its appearance. Well, this is really all I'm trying to say, is that these, uh, this uh, power of uh, acceptance and forgiveness, which is often carried out through a form of disattachment, uh, which uh, at a point of great... Uh, terrible problem is seen by looking yourself in the mirror through some interaction with a phenomenon that you see in your life, some conversation on the phone, some poem you read. It happens in Rear Window when the, a woman is about to commit suicide. Here's a song uh, that does it. Uh, and then all of a sudden, boy, you're open to um, to forgiveness because you are able to stand outside the way God sees it, the God's eye view, to use Hitchcockian critical language, and you see something, and that immediately opens up to the possibility of that in the grand reality, capital R, of God's universe, there is a merciful answer, and the answer often comes through a specific person or thing, but there is this opening up that causes this to be a hellacious prelude and a true Calvary in the very deepest sense of the word. Now, I end with a... uh, a uh, a cut from a very recent uh, LP by Los Straightjackets. Uh, their best music is all instrumental guitar, and this is called Aerostar. And I think it's the uh, it's from the LP Jet Set. Uh, it's very good. It's new and uh, particularly outstanding. They broke some new ground, Los Straightjackets. It's not pure Los Straightjackets, which is as good as it gets when it's pure, but. They broke a little new ground, and if you listen to this, just just listen to it. It's nothing. It's just a kind of a guitar instrumental uh, called Aerostar. But um, see if you don't, at the very end of it, Le Straitjackets always brings in the new idea or the galvanizing idea in the last quarter of their songs. It's just something they always do. That's why you always have to listen. I would say the last third of their songs has the sort of idea that takes it to a new level. So you have to often listen to a predictable riff, as it were, and a predictable refrain, good as it is, until you get to the new idea, which is usually in the last third of the song. And listen all the way through to the new idea. There are no words to it, but I'll underdetermine it and see if you don't hear a tender voice to you. Come to me. Jesus is calling. He walks or he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I'm his own. See if you don't hear the note of tender forgiveness in the conclusion of this really quite remarkable but very short uh, instrumental by Los Straightjackets. Uh, as they used to say in the uh, uh, in old broadcasts, uh, goodbye and good luck, but really, God bless you. <laughs>